by those codes. I was fortunate, blessed enough to come up, have a great talent, but was still brought up with certain morals and, and principles, which is why a person like the OG Peter Shue and me can have such a great relationship because we live by a similar code. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, right, they don't, a lot of people say they know the code, yeah. but they don't practice it the right way. You know what I mean? Like, how are you able to still follow the code, practice the code, still go through the bullshit, but still come out without a scar? No dirt on you. Yeah, yeah well, you don't come out without dirt. That's one thing, but, you know. Well, their dirt. Their dirt, yeah. I don't have their dirt. Yeah, that's a fact, you know. And, you know, it's just, it's just. It, 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 it's hard It's hard for me to even throw a lot of Criticism on people who People who betray the code People who don't live by a code Or who don't have morals or principles Number one, a lot of people weren't taught that way But number two The entire American culture Is built To Create a codeless society you feel me? So I know that all of the momentum, all the energy is 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 all the energy is pushing people to betray whatever code they live by. Whatever code. It might not be my code, might not be shoes code. Whatever code it is you live by, the entire system, the entire culture is trying to get you to betray that. And so it, it it's very few people. Very, very fortunate, very blessed people, but people who have courage, who got, you know, fortitude, who have who have a, a spine, people who stand on something. Very few people who can encounter all of that and still stand on it, you know? And so that was that was me from a young age. Maybe it was growing up in the Midwest. I came up under guys who looked up to the minister, you know, Louis Farrakhan. I, I grew up watching Louis, uh, Louis Farrakhan on cable access. I would have, I, I, you're gonna laugh now that you brought him up. He was from here originally, right? Right, yeah, right. Yeah. It was, well, it's funny. Was, he was a yeah out in Boston. They they ran the streets out here. Right. They was there. Uh, uh, Farrakhan was doing the music, you know, making it happen. And, and we actually grew up Muslim. Me and my family grew up Muslim. Uh, now I catch a I catch some flack as well, but it's crazy how it's all how you brought it up because the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was my great uncle with blood. Relative blood. Oh yeah, you cut his blood, you cut mine, mix it, same thing, same DNA. It's crazy how we're having this conversation. Yeah, yeah. But see, so all the way in Minnesota because Chicago was right there, and the minister was doing his doing doing the ministry in Chicago. You know that that influenced me. But I also grew up. I wasn't Muslim. I grew up Catholic Christian. But my mom was open minded enough to say, "Who are the black men out there that are speaking against the?" establishment you know who who who's saying something and standing on something okay i'm putting my son in front of that right and so you know i just grew up a certain way that was different than many of the people that were even around me i was fortunate like that so when it came time to be put on a stage and speak on things or say certain things or or to be able to address certain things with the establishment i was equipped to do that and that's that's what god put me so i don't i don't i say that because i don't throw any shade on those people who who fumble up living by the code or fail to stand on certain things. Now that I'm getting a little bit older, I understand that everybody ain't built for that. No. No, no, but, but also though, if you're not built for that, then don't try and block the people that are. Just move to the side, let somebody else step up and, and do what needs to be done. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane, yeah, if you're not, if you're not, if you know, if you're not, if you, you don't got something that you're standing on, I get it. 
but just don't get in my way. Because yeah. if you're in my way, I'm going to run you over. <laughs> I'm standing on what I'm standing on. That's You ain't blocking his blessings. I'm running straight through you, you know, no matter who it is, no name, doesn't matter how much money you got. Yeah. You know, for example, like my, my time in the NBA, everybody would know me from this NBA story. And I see so many black people coming online and they they – in one sense, they say the white man's keeping me back, but in another sense, they take all the information from the white man. Same white man, right? White man's oppressing me, white supremacy, racism, uh, so on and so forth. But then when you go to comment on social media or you go to form your worldview or whatever it is that you're thinking about or talking about, you referencing the same material that came from the same yeah. people, yeah. right? So, and it just, you know, I get it. It's easy. It's convenient. I'm going to go speak on Royce White. What's the first thing I remember? Let me Google him, all right? And is what pops up is whatever Yahoo said, yeah. oh, like, like Yahoo is really telling the fucking truth, right? And so now I'm going to go back to the comments to try and get some clout or some likes or whatever. And I'm just bringing that up as an example because... My my uh, my fight with the NBA wasn't a, wasn't an ins insignificant one. It was very significant, and pro sports is not insignificant. I always tell people now that I'm running a politics. You can't separate sports and politics. Yeah, politics are sports. Sports are politics, yeah. and the sports are never off. Just like the politics are never off. That's why you can watch sports 365 days a year, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, and guess what? And now more people know more about sports than they do politics. You think that's by accident? No. No. Sports is the new religion, right? First, it was politics was the new religion, and now sports is the new distraction, right? Yeah. So, so. When I went to go fight the NBA in 2012 about mental health, and I came in and I had I was public about dealing with anxiety and and uh, you which know. was smart. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, I didn't see any. I wasn't hiding anything, right? Because I wasn't in trouble. Most of the time when you hear people talk about mental health, they always have gotten in some trouble, mm -hmm. right? Like I was drinking and driving, yeah. and now I'm going to say I'm an alcoholic yeah. Yeah. or. I got caught in some crazy sex scandal. I'm a sex addict or I'm a drug addict. I got caught with some work and now. I'm, even if it happened one time. Even if it happened one yeah. time, yeah. yeah. But you know, but that ends up, but, and I'm not saying those people don't have those issues. Okay. I'm just saying that wasn't my story. My story was, look, I got, I'm dealing with anxiety. A reporter asked me about it. I happened to slip and just say it. I wasn't hiding it, but I wasn't trying to like, you know, make a, a, a big, a big deal out of it either. Right. But once it was said, it was said, and then it became a big deal. Like, this kid, what's he talking about anxiety? He don't know other Division One players that are leading their team in every major stat category in the big, the best conference in the country. Nobody else talking about their mental health conditions. So it became a big deal. But my story wasn't I had gotten in trouble. My story was I'm crushing these motherfuckers with an anxiety disorder. How is he doing it? Like, I used to get this question from reporters all the time. You say you're anxious, but how do you go play in front of 17,000 people? And I'm like, I'm more comfortable there sometimes than I am 30,000 feet in the air on a plane. Don't ask me why. I don't know why. It's just the way, the way I'm that, That's deep. You know, but, but and, and what I'm saying is like, that story was a big deal at the time. A lot of people wouldn't even remember it now because everything moves so fast. But at the time, athletes weren't talking about mental health. Public figures weren't talking about mental health. Celebrities weren't talking about Black men weren't talking about mental health. Black women weren't talking about mental health. Everybody talking about mental health now. Oh, now hold on. But now we got to say, we got to say the reasons why they, who, who, who they use now, what they use, COVID. COVID now opened up a lot of doors. Oh, man, look. <laughs> look. 
Look, we could get look. No, this is what really happened. Right. I'm gonna yeah, t- please tell it. I'm gonna tell you what happened from the from the beginning because I was there. Yeah. yeah, I was in the room. I came in at a time where mental health science, the science of mental health, was starting to starting to kick up. Right, like there had been a lot of research done. There had been a lot of studies done. There had been a lot of conclusions that were made about certain mental health. Uh, conditions and different ways to try and treat them, different um, non-pharmaceutical therapies, right, such as uh, like uh, biofeedback machines that really just focus on breathing and, and uh, you know, uh, homeopathic stuff, right, uh, because there have been a lot of criticism against the pharmaceutical industry right. for psychiatric medicine, right. okay. Right. Now this, in the 90s and 2000s, was on the tail end of the 60s, 70s, and 80s being a time where mental health, from a government standpoint and policy standpoint had been completely uprooted remember in the 60s they closed the mental health hospitals so the 70s and 80s which coincided with the drug wave not by coincidence probably um, this was a, a failure of the mental health system in the 90s now people are just starting to touch back into it tap back into it to figure out why is the society so sick what like people are really Having problems, big problems. The homeless community was like the the, the representation. Well, see, that's still being represented. That's still the representation to this day. No, but now it's the young white uh, girl, teenage girl, who has two parents and is in high school, and she's getting good grades, but she's still suicidal. Okay, making sense. Okay, so so it was it was all it was bubbling. Right. It was easy to look at the homeless and go, well, why is this guy walking down the street tapping himself on the head? Right? Versus the white girl. You feel me? Yeah, so that was the yeah, narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not just the white girls, though. I'm not picking on them, but yeah, yeah. it's just a fact that white men commit suicide three to four times more than black men. Right. Black men are more likely to shoot each other. Right. A white man is more likely to shoot himself. Yeah. Okay. So, but pick up what he's putting down, y'all. So, so when I come in now, it's right at this moment where social media is taking off, right? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Remember, in 2010, this shit was just starting to take off. What it is now is out. Nobody could have even imagined it. The people who started it couldn't. I mean, they probably imagined it, but they couldn't even imagine how big and influential it is now. There's, I mean, there's nobody. Back then, you, I remember when we had the sidekicks for T-Mobile. And I love those things. But you never logged on on MySpace because no, it was too difficult. Right. You had to get to a computer if you really wanted to be active on social media, right? Because yeah. it wasn't built together like that. Now, every the first app you get on your phone is a social media app, okay? Right. So, so when I was coming in in 2012 in the league, it was just starting to kick off. I didn't understand at the time why the NBA didn't want to talk about mental health. I didn't understand why the NBA didn't want to spearhead the mental health conversation or why they didn't want to put mental health policies in place. Like when I came in the league, our collective bargaining agreement didn't have a single mention of mental health in the entire document. There wasn't a single mention of mental health in the entire collective bargaining agreement. But marijuana is on the banned substance list. Now, I never smoked marijuana. I was never a drug user or an alcohol user, so the banned substance list didn't really affect me, other than there were also anti-anxiety medications listed on the banned substance list, a.k.a. Xanax, right? Because young black men... That actually was the first one. Young black men 
popping, popping Xannies, yeah. right? Okay, so Xanax can be a street drug, but you also can get a prescription for it. Exactly, I a prescription because I actually had. Well, you did have. Okay, so you, how how was it like? Like, was you like I don't? Because I've heard so many stories, right? Of like people who started off it was prescribed, all right, but all of a sudden they became hooked. Yes. I'm gonna tell you. No, no. So this this is what I was saying. Xanax. There's only two drugs that kill you from going off cold turkey. Withdrawals will kill you. Alcohol and Xanax. If you if you if you're an alcoholic like a severe alcoholic, I mean you're drinking every day and you go cold turkey be, because of the the effect that alcohol has on the central nervous system, taking it away from the central nervous system too rapidly will cause the central nervous system to actually go haywire and you'll have a seizure and people die from seizures i mean you could get that's when people get fevers that's usually why you die from getting a fever it's because your brain will seize so seizures are just dangerous in general but alcohol withdrawals lead to seizures xanax withdrawals lead to seizures okay they work on the central nervous system the exact same way okay so now here i am at 21 years old just got drafted to the nba i have this fear of flying dealing with this anxiety stuff, but I'm, pres but I'm prescribed Xanax, okay? And now I got the entire world and the whole league telling me, take Xanax every time you need to fly, you're fine. All of them knowing that Xanax is the single most dangerous prescribed drug in America per capita. Now think about what you just said, right? One thing, uh, average thinker would be like, okay, cool. Well, why wouldn't he want to? I mean, they, the NBA told him it's good for him, okay, well, whatever, but, what a person who may think a little bit deeper is to say, but wait a minute, take it every time I'm on a flight. Look at how many flights you guys take. Hundred. You see what I'm saying? A hundred. A <laughs> hundred a year. Now, that's a hundred Xanax. Well, now, and now let me, let, me t let, me, let me tell you how, let me just tell you how addictive Xanax is. Yeah. Xanax is so addictive that nobody, no doctor prescribes it for long-term use. So already taking it for a hundred flights and, and, and the short-term uh, prescription guidance from the FDA, okay, the Food and Drug Administration. So this is why they didn't like me, because I'm like, no, let's talk about you guys' recommendation. I'm not making it up on my own. I'm not asking for anything unique. I'm talking about what you guys say, okay? You guys say this is for short-term use only because it's so deadly, it's so addictive. Like for example, you could be taking Xanax as prescribed and you will still become addicted, right? Like even if you take it on the, the doctor's schedule, slowly but surely you'll have to take it more because the, the time in between, they call it interdosal withdrawals. So like let's say I wake up in the morning and I'm having anxiety from the night whatever it was, bad dreams, whatever. Couldn't sleep, I don't know. 9 a.m. I take a Xanax. I'm prescribed three times a day at .25, which is the smallest dose, .25. Goes all the way up to like two grams per dose. Those are for the, the real, like the... Uh, there's people, yeah, no, there's people who need it. You know, there's people who have anxiety that bad, who really can't function without it. Okay, so let's say I'm taking .25. Around 1 p.m., I start feeling anxious again. I take another point twenty-five. The next day, or two days later, that 1 p.m. is gonna turn into 12 p.m. 
then it'll be 11. Then before you know it, I'll be taking it at nine and then I'm gonna have to take it again at 10.30. Now, before you know it, over the course of the day, now I've almost doubled how much Xanax I'm taking until I get all the way up to damn near two grams. And it happens all the time. Now, when I try to go off of it, cold turkey, you're done. Your body seizes up, your mind seizes up. You know, and you might not die. You could die. You might not die, but you'll go through hell. I mean, going withdrawn from. I mean, that, that's a withdrawal. So I'm saying at 21, and this is what I said at 21. If you have this on a banned substance list, why are you telling me take it? It's all right. You're gonna be all right. No, I'm not. And they knew I wasn't gonna be all right. They didn't care. They didn't care. And this is where people get, get things confused. See, the people who really print money in the world, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the NBA. These people print money. They're managers of a certain portion of the money. Of course. But they're connected to the people who print the money, right? And they, they feel that sense of security. We all live in this check-to-check kind of way where a motherfucker can't put together $500 cash in a crisis. That's what your leaders have done to you. They've created an economy where the average American citizen doesn't have $500 cash in a crisis. Mama dies. Kid dies. I can't even afford the casket. That's the type of economy they've created. I hope y'all are listening, man. This, this right here is serious.